All right, today we're in Romans 8, uh, verses 14 through 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath your seat, and that would be on page 550. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Luke. Well done. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if I haven't met you, please say hi after the service. I'd love to meet you. But we are walking through this beautiful chapter in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and we're in this little section here, which is actually near and dear to my heart. So uh, those of you that are followers of Jesus in the room, you know Jesus does not do everything at once. When you meet him for the first time, whether it's you were raised in a Christian home or you went off to a camp or you hit rock bottom and you went through a divorce and whatever, your life crumbled and Jesus met you and he picked you up and he turned you around, your life does not transform in the moment. He sort of takes you on this journey together. But there are these moments on your journey where he sort of shows himself in profound and impactful ways more than he has in other seasons. And for me, that's I become a Christian at 18 years old at a baseball camp, light bulb goes on. I kind of cruise control through college. I don't do a ton of growing. I move off to grad school in another state and I'm lonelier than I've ever been. And my decision on what to do with my loneliness was to go and read the Bible cover to cover the first time and the light bulbs go off again. But probably the most profound, we're like, wow, this altered my view of God. More than anything is the section of scripture we're looking at today. And I was reading a book, Knowing God. I think I got a picture up here for it by a guy named J.I. Packer, Anglican guy out of England. It's just all these truths about Christianity, justification, sanctification, but there's a chapter in there called adoption. You are adopted by God. And I'm personally actually adopted in real life, but I grew up Catholic and my view of God was that God was this big scary God and then I become a Christian and that goes away and now I know without 100% certainty I am forgiven. But my Christianity didn't like take the next step of God is doing more than just forgiving you of your sins. He's adopting you into his family. Here's what J.I. Packer says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher than even justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by the God our Father is even greater. We are children loved by God. We are not simply sinners forgiven by God. That's what we're looking at today. Romans chapter 8, spirit of adoption. What kind of children does the spirit make is what we're looking at today. He doesn't just make forgiven sinners on their way to heaven. He makes new children. And Chandler mentioned all the pregnancies we got and people wanting to be pregnant. Part of the sweetness of that, one of the things is the thought of what's it going to be like to take a little bit of you and a little bit of me and see what this new creature looks like? Like, is he going to get your best qualities, my best qualities? Like everyone always asks about my four boys. Which one of these kids has your uh, sarcasm? Which one has your annoyance? Which one has your... And it's like, they all got my wife's smile, thankfully. They got my height, unfortunately. They got a mixture of our athleticism, luckily. They got my sense of humor, mostly. It's like, they're a good little mix. It's like, what is it going to look like to have a little bit of Aubrey, a little bit of Josh? Oh, there's Elijah and Roman and Jude and Ozzy. What does it look like? 
When the Spirit of God comes on you, you're forgiven by the, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, but he now makes you a child of God. What is the Spirit trying to do in the lives of us? Just to show you, just here's the baseline verse for all what we're doing this morning. Verse 14, Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And that word sons is just a banner statement. Are sons and daughters of God. What does it mean that I'm a child of God? You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. What does that mean? Here's my definition that we're going to walk through today. Do I need to pull this away from my face or up on my head or Chandler, you, you always said you'd step in and help no matter what, but <laughs> which, which way do, would I do? You, I don't know what that means. There we go. Better. Yes. Chandler. Oh, get, you guys can hear me still? Yeah, great. Back to the good stuff. Child of God. Here's what I see in this passage. The Spirit is creating in us. Here's what we are. A fearless heir who suffers well. Fearlessness, inheritance, and the ability to suffer well. That's what it means to be a child of God. You're like, there's no love in that definition. I know. It's in there. But in this passage in particular, what does it mean that we are adopted sons and daughters, that we are fearless heirs who will, can, and are suffering well? That's what we're doing today. I want to pray and just ask God by his spirit to remind us of what this passage says, that we are sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Father, do what this passage says. The spirit bears witness with ours that we are children of God. And if children heirs, and if heirs, we will suffer well. Remind us of what it means that we are your children. We are not just sinners who have been cleared in a courtroom who will one day enjoy the benefits of heaven. We are sinners who have been forgiven and then invited into your family to be your son, to be your daughter, now and forever. What a glorious truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here's the first thing. Child of God who are fearless heirs who suffer well. So I just want to read the passage again, verse 14 through 16. Let's go down there, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now here's how Paul describes this. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So again, Romans is far different than Isaiah and the things we've been in in the past. It's way more sort of logical uh, points Paul is making. And there's basically three if-then statements built into this. This first one is, if you have the Spirit of God, you are a confident child of God. If you have the Spirit, you should be confident as his Child, but confident in light of what? The negative emotion being talked about here. What's the negative emotion being talked about here? Very simply, it's fear. Fear. The word, the Greek word under there is simply the word phobia. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Commitment of phobia, fear of commitment. <laughs> what are you afraid of? It's talking about all of our phobias. So as I prepared for this and meet with different groups to talk through this passage, in particular for our church here, we just kind of did a roundtable. What are the fears going on 
in our congregation right now. And here's just sort of a list of what people in this room right now are afraid of. Spiders, obviously. We fear not being in control. And you're like, well, you got to call me out right out of the gate. Tied to that, we fear the unknown of work, our relationships, our health. Like, um, more hands come up. We fear changes in our lives. It's like, I didn't, one guy told me, we don't mind change. We just hate change that we're not in control of, which is, that's exactly right, which is most change in life. If I'm the one choosing, dictating, directing, leading this change, then I'm all for it. But if it's change happening to me, I want nothing to do with it. We fear being insignificant. Like I just, my heart goes out for people wanting to start families. Part of that is like, who am I if I'm not this? And then on the tail end, as we, I talk to older people, especially ones that are in retirement. Now it's like all that you built up your life, all the kids, all the job, all the titles, all the resume, all the, and then you get to this stage of life and the insignificance kickbacks up and you're like, gosh. I was listening to this podcast. A senator said after he retired, the phone stopped ringing completely. And I don't know how many senators or senator-like experience we have in this room, but you're going to end your job and the phone will stop ringing. And that is scary. It causes fear. We fear being single. Again, single is a calling by the Lord for some, but it's also a season that a lot of us are walking through right now. And just from my vantage point as a 40-year-old guy who's watching single people do this, it is a I almost said a word I would be called out for, and Jack, my elder, is in here, so. <laughs> it's a terrible time to be a single person. I'll say it that way. It's an extremely terrible time to be a Christian single person trying to do it faithfully. I'll add on. It's an extremely, extremely terrible season to be a Christian female trying to do it well. And that's, and you fear that, and I get it. We fear our bodies. Like, one thing I passed out in high school, I was at this doctor's appointment, he said, you have shingles. He starts explaining, I'm like, <laughs> and you're like, what is shingles? It's very terrible, and it, the description is terrible. And I thought, oh, that's a cute one, if I passed out in high school. But every time I'm in a serious doctor's appointment, I get my hernia surgeon, he's describing, and he starts talking about very real things that are inside of me that I don't understand, that have very real consequences to my life now, and the end of my life, perhaps. It's like, the blood goes out of me. And I'm like, every time. Why? There's something about me. Like, I fear all this that I can't control. And you guys probably are similar. Here's a huge one. We fear our cultural moment. Like I think of more trivial ones, like growing older and trying to keep up with technology. Like every time I have to ask Chandler or Xavier, like, hey, how do I do this thing on this stupid little phone? I like immediately in my head, I look at my dad and I'm like, I got to be more gracious with him. <laughs> this whole thing is hard. This train's moving fast. I get it. Like I can't just be yelling at my dad because he can't figure out Gmail passwords. I got to. <laughs> but then on a more serious level, just the cultural moment and just how hotly debated everything is. I'm listening to a podcast on J.K. Rowling, basically how she was canceled from the left, 
and from the right. Originally, the right canceled her because she was talking about witchcraft and all the Christian subculture raised up and said, we must burn these books. And then she gets through that fire and then she speaks out about gender and says what a woman is and she gets canceled by the left and she's like a picture of what it is to try to stick your neck out and say or do anything in this day and age. It's not worth it, really, it seems like. We fear missing out. It's a big one. I read this blog the other day. had a few FOMO. FOMO, fear of missing out. FOBO, fear of the better option. Did I pick the best possible option? No, you probably didn't. <laughs> like even, and this is going to be very offensive to some of you, and I don't care, even in your spouse, the reality is Aubrey... There's a lot of other guys out there that are a better option than this. But we have committed to each other, and this is marriage. Marriage is not you or the one person in the history of the universe that found your perfect match. And the universe has been waiting for this moment where you two come together, and now all is right with the world. Marriage is... Uh, there's three options in here. Uh, all right. <laughs> You're like, remind me not to have Josh officiate my wedding. I'm, I'm way better in weddings. But it's just reality. We fear everything. We fear death as an exclamation point on all this. Like we have a lot of phobias. Now, here's, here's, how do we deal with this fear? Let me just tell you how I would like to deal with my fear if I was in charge of this world. Like, here's what I would want. It's like Google Maps. I'm driving somewhere. I can look at Google Maps. I'd love to have it. And then I like to zoom in so I can see all the turns and I understand everything I've got to do. And then I put the phone over here. But my wife doesn't like me looking at my phone while I'm driving, so she usually holds it, and I do Google Maps the way it's meant to do. It tells you your next stop, turn, yield, nothing more. In 200 feet, you're going to turn right. In an eighth of a mile, slow down. Here's how we think our fears could be dealt with. If we could just see our life as like this map, I'm here, I'm getting there, and get to see it all played out, it'd be like all my fears would subside. Singles, if I just knew I was married by 2026, all that fear you think would go. If I just knew I had a kid by my 34th birthday, fears would... If I could just see the whole map. And just so you know, that's not how life works. And for a Christian, it's not how life is supposed to work. It's supposed to be waiting for the voice to tell you the next left turn, the next right turn. Our fear is not going to be fixed with knowing all of our circumstances. To try to, here's what I wrote just to make it make sense in my heart. Fear is way more relationally driven than circumstantially driven. Meaning we all think fear is a circumstantial thing. The circumstance I'm in or going in or coming out of is what's causing, revealing the fear. But I think what Paul says, it's way more relationally driven than we realize. 
Another way I said it, our fears flow out of our relationships or lack thereof more than they spring up because of our circumstances. Meaning my fear of my body and what it's doing or not doing right. There's something relationally inside of me that's causing that fear more than the circumstances that Dr. Leitner is revealing to me in the moment. Like, let's just read this. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Two relationships are compared. That of a slave, that of a son. Slavery causes fear. Sonship causes crying out to your father. Where is the fear coming from? Paul would say it comes from a spirit of slavery. Slavery is sort of a harsh term and it, like, it doesn't totally translate all the time. Here's another way to think about it. Slavery would be an insecure orphan. And the spirit of sonship or adoption would be that of a secure and loved child. Now, here's what I want to ask. Which spirit have you received? The spirit of slavery or the spirit of sonship? Paul says, you have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear about everything that is actually scary. Death is scary. My body breaking down is scary. But you have not received this spirit of slavery. You've received a spirit of sonship. So how do we become more fearless? Just looking at this text here. Here's what Ozzy would say, my fourth born. I tell him stories at night or I read a little story. We've been reading through the Bible. He's like, I'm a little bored with this. Can you go back to the old stories? I'm like, all right, we'll tell an old story. So I'm telling him a story which usually involves Ozzy, Porter, his best friend, his other best friend, Owen Blackwell, his other best friend, Micah. I don't know if those boys know, but they're all Ozzy's best friends. And it's always involving a monster that must be killed. Ozzy often is the killer, slayer of said monster. Monster was hiding out in a cave underneath our neighbor's grapefruit tree. And who comes to save the day? Ozzy, you're right. And he saves Porter out of the grip of the monster. I tell that story. It's a great story. If I ever write it down, I'll make a lot. It's a great, great story. But the next morning, I go see him, and he always kind of is like telling tidbits of the story. And I ask him this question. Ozzy, how are you so brave? Without missing a beat, he says, because I have good parents. And that's not like, hey, look at me. But there's something so purely true about what he's saying. Where does bravery, fearlessness come from? It doesn't come from facing your fears and conquering them all the time. That's part of it. But at its core, why is this world filled with the spirit of fear? Because there is a spirit of slavery at work in all of us. How do we get to be more brave, more fearless? We remind ourselves of what Ozzy knows. We need a good parent. And just so you know, I'm going to drop the ball a lot. I have one of the greatest parents in the world. Both. <laughs> Can we edit? And, uh... But as I think about like my dad and Remember, I was in the string of counseling sessions a lot where I was counseling a lot. And our, the church I came from, we just had a lot of meetings. And us pastors were debriefing. And we were kind of taking notes. And the theme was this. Broken relationships with fathers. There was all this hurt and pain and trauma, which is not insurmountable. 
And then the folks that we talked to that just have this boldness, this confidence, it wasn't like academic tied, it wasn't physically tied, it wasn't tied to their genetic makeup. A lot of it was like they just have a secure relationship with their dad because they have good, good parents. <laughs> and Paul is saying, how do we not live out of spirit of fear? We remind ourselves of our good Father, let me just read it again. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's a few things for you just to take with you in this area. Remind yourself that you no longer have the spirit of slavery. Fear comes up. Am I going to be single forever? Am I going to do this? Is my job going to... Am I going to get canceled for... Am I going to... Whatever it is. And in that moment, say, I have not been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 3. God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and sound mind. Therefore, act like it. You were not given a spirit of slavery. And then second thing, remind yourself that you have been given the spirit of adoption. I love the language in here. You have received... The spirit, verse 15 and verse 16, the spirit now himself is bearing witness. So past tense, the spirit has been given to you. Present tense, the spirit is bearing witness with your spirit. It's sort of singing alongside you. It's like Chandler and the band. He, sometimes your spirit's strong and you're singing and the spirit's just affirming what you're saying to be true about you and God. And sometimes your spirit is weak and the spirit picks it up and sings louder for you so that you can come in and sing harmony and remind yourself what? That God is my father. I've been adopted into his family, and I can cry out, Abba, Father. But then the third thing, just to grow in your fearlessness, is pray to your Father. What does Paul say here? Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba, Father. Two words there. Abba is Paul's native tongue. Abba. Father is Greek, just a generic father term. What's he saying? He's saying and modeling at the same time how we pray. How do we pray? We pray personal, intimate, relational to our father. Whatever you call him. Like, I don't know how you address God in prayer, but if you don't have like a, a thing you address him as, I think that's probably hindering you. And I think it's probably keeping you in more of a spirit of slavery and fear than you realize. Like Sam, not one of the greatest movies of all time. A very just quick little trivial moment in the beginning. He really wants to play catch. He's got a mom and a stepdad. I just want to play catch. And the mom's like, go ask him, go ask him. And he walks in. A Bill, Bill, a dad, Bill, a dad, dad, Bill. He has no confidence because he doesn't know how to address that man. Is he my dad? Is he my stepdad? Is he Bill? Is he your father? Is he your dad? I would just say you need to have some language that you can call him and pray to your Father in heaven and the Spirit will bear witness with you, reminding you that you are his child. We are primarily, as children of God, to be fearless and growing in fearlessness. What's the next thing? Verse 17, we're not only just fearless, but we are heirs. Let's read verse 17 together. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember, I said there's all these if-then statements. Here it explicitly says, if you are a child of God, then you are also an heir. If you are a child of God, you are an heir. What does that mean? Over on the other side of the ocean, England's got a big thing going on. The king is getting his crown. 
I was like, I wonder what his inheritance is. Real estate, the kingdom owns like $30 billion worth of real estate throughout the world. Queen Elizabeth had like 600 million in personal assets, jewelry, old Michael Jackson albums, whatever it is, it's all his. And now he gets a crown. That's quite an inheritance. I've been in one will in my entire life. My Nana. God bless her soul. My grandson, Joshua James Watt, gets my 1993 Ford Taurus wagon. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. The problem with my Nana is she's a fighter and she just outlived like seven wills. <laughs> I don't know what inheritance I have coming from anywhere. The Bible says this over and over. We are heirs of God. Now here's the problem. This, is, this clashes with the cultural uh, telling of the Christian story as much as any truth in all of scripture. What do I mean by that? Like when you say heirs of God or heaven or talk about what we're getting, here's generally what happens. And here's, this is from just empirical data as I do funeral after funeral. And most of the funerals I do are for people in the church. I've done some outside. But even when there's somebody in the church, the friends and family that come, it's a largely like mixed crowd as far as religious belief. And I get to say something and then family gets to say something. And this is just in general what I see people hoping for as an inheritance. Here's the question. What does the world tell us we get as heirs of God? Here's the first thing. Our loved ones. Like without a skip of a beat. You're like, what's wrong with that? Nothing. It's just, I hope there's more than that. And that's not really tied to anything other than sentiment. It's like, I, I'm going to get my grandma back. And my, like, I loved all my grandparents, and they all died in like the prime of life where I'd love to tell them about all these seasons. And I know one of them that valued Jesus. I, loved ones. Here's a tied to that a second. Maybe your pets. I don't, it's like, and my dog. Those of you who hate your dogs, you're like, please tell me that's not heaven. <laughs> Third thing, no more pain. I'm with my grandma, and this ache in me is gone. Again, these are all good longings, but it's just a little thin. Here's the next thing. And then, in some vague sense, heaven. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's better than this place. Then why are we so sad that they're in that place? And then finally... And here's maybe some wings. <laughs> Chicken wings or angel wings. I, but that's without the Spirit illuminating the Scripture to tell us what it is. That's in general what I see is like the afterlife. Because most, there's some like hard and fast atheists. Like God's not my thing. This is all crazy. Science is the end game. When I die, I'm just going to decompose. And so that's how, that's, there's few of those people. Most of us have some spirituality sense, and that's the sense I get of what we're longing for when we think about being heirs of God and getting what's next. But here's what the Word tells us about what we get as heirs. Here's the first one. We get God. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they know God and His one and only Son, Jesus, whom He has sent Period. That's the end goal of this world. Is that God, perfect in love 
and relationship and father, son, and spirit has created, not out of a lack. He was not bored. He created out of an abundance of love to create beings who are also capable of love. And they are going to return back to him one day. And that is the end goal. That is our main inheritance as we get God now and forever. Here's the second thing. Our resurrection bodies. 1 Corinthians 15. You don't need to turn there. I'll turn there. This is how Paul says it. Verse 42, 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. What is he saying? This thing, this body is weak and fading and falling, but it's going to be raised imperishable one day, and we can guarantee that we are going to have a resurrection body that is far better than this. That's our inheritance. We get God, and we get God in our resurrected bodies, but you haven't got to pet yet. That's for after the sermon. <laughs> Third thing, here's what we get, and you'll be like, this sounds, we get the whole world. 1 Corinthians, that passage 3, 21, 22, there's an argument about which preacher's best. You like it? Are you an Xavier guy or a Josh guy? Like, I don't know, you know, Xavier's growing on me. And Paul's like, you guys are idiots. The whole world is Christ, and Christ is yours, so you get the whole world. And you're sitting here arguing about silly men leaders in your church. The whole world is going to be yours. Meaning one day, the end of Revelation tells us this, that the new heavens and the new earth are going to come together back forever, and the whole world is ours. Paris, space, Albuquerque, the North Pole, the South Pole, all the spices in the world that you have not tasted yet in your life, it's all ours. All of it. That's our inheritance. That's what we get. That is beautiful. We are children, and if we're children, then we're heirs, and we get all that. And we also get this as heirs, especially co-heirs with Christ. Here's the final thing, which is not going to sound all that great. We get suffering. Romans 8, 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's our final part of our definition. A child of God is a fearless heir who suffers well. Verse 17, provided. What does provided mean? It's the word if. We are children, if children heirs, if we suffer. Like that's a big statement. We get all the beautiful stuff Josh just talked about if we suffer. Now here's what Paul is doing. If we suffer like a Christian. Because here's the reality about suffering. Every person suffers. The most staunch atheist, the most devout Muslim, the most tried and true Mormon, the most faithful Christian, and the most pathetic Christian in this room. We all walk through a life of suffering. That's just how this world works post-Genesis 3. But Paul is saying, if we suffer with the Christian does not suffer generally. The Christian suffers with him. So to wrap up our time, how do we suffer with him? 
Two words to remember. The first one is we suffer for him. And I think this is what most of us think about if we think about suffering as a Christian. It's the suffering that comes to us specifically because of our Christian faith. In parts of the world, obviously, this is highlighted and heightened and very uh, intense. In America, it's sort of you can blend in and the the persecution is more tied to political leanings than uh, religious leanings at this point. But if you suffer like a Christian, 1 Peter says this, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Raising kids, this is like the main thing I have to disciple my kids through. We're in school, we got three in school, the fourth will be in school next year. And the reality of like every time Christianity or something tied to Christianity or a conviction that my kids have because they are being raised in a Christian home, it's like it is not a kind place for that person to stand up to be a Christian. But Paul says, if you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. So I don't know what suffering is for you. It could be a range of like demotion at work. It could be as small as like rolling eyes at you because you're that guy or that girl. But all of us, if we're actually living faithfully, are going to face moments we are suffering for him because we are Christian and speaking on behalf of Christ. But more than that, here's where I think most of our suffering is going to be. And currently in this room, which I know is happening, it's suffering where we suffer like him. It's not suffering because I've got my Christian badge and I've got my Christian stuff I want to say. It's suffering in the same manner, in the same way, to the same degree as Christ suffered as he suffered on this earth. The best passage to think about this is Philippians. Here's what Paul says. He's talking about the goal of life. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And if you jump down to verse 10, here's how he describes what it's like to know Christ. That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, how Paul, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death. How do we suffer Like Jesus, we share his sufferings and we become like him in his death. What does that mean? Here's what redemption uses across all redemptions as just a discipleship tool that has been helpful for me and I think will be helpful for you. We call it the J-curve. You're like, how'd you come up with that name? It's a J and it's curved. But more specifically, this is the shape of Jesus' life. Life good. Eh. Then he goes down into death, actual, actual death, after uh, 33 years approximately of suffering and being mocked and belittled and all that. So lots of little death. He goes down into death, and then three days later, he rises again higher than he was before. Now here's just narrative-wise. Here's how this works. Jesus' life, he's there. He goes down into death. He chooses death. Remember in the garden, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will but I'll go along with it. And he chooses to go to the cross. He chooses to go down into death. And then how did he come out of that grave? It was not by his willpower. It wasn't him pumping himself up. The only way Jesus was raised was by the spirit of God who raised him. Now, how does this apply to your life and my life? Just here's another J curve right here. Here's what some of you are in right now. You were in a season of health, life, 
It's good. And God, by his fatherly, gracious, wise hand, has invited you into a season of suffering. That which you did not want, ask for, desire. And now you're in the season of suffering. How do you get out of that suffering? It's out of your control. But here's what I tell you. Don't miss the suffering. Share in his sufferings. Become like him in his death. What Paul would say in Romans 8, what we just read, provided we suffer with him. In your suffering, ask God, what are you inviting me into in this death that I did not ask for? And then one day, it might be glory when you meet him or it might be before that, by the spirit, you will be raised out of that low moment, that death curve, and you will give glory to God. And here's what just the honest truth, what is terrible about being a Christian. As soon as you get out of that J-curve, there's another one presented. You're like, gosh, I just got out of this. I did not ask for this. I know you didn't. But this is how growth works as a Christian, provided we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. Here's a final J-curve potential. Like, difficult person, I don't know if you know any. I've met a few. Here's my way of dealing with them. I kind of get cynical, I get calloused up, and I avoid them. Like, that's a great method. That's my move. (laughs) That's not the move of Jesus. Jesus spent his last night on earth. Like, this is a question about, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? Like, I'm going to Cabo. I'm getting slammed. I'm going to GCU and... Jesus, you got one night to live. What are you doing? He gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of him who would betray him. Why? Because he is perfect in love. There's a difficult person in your life. Call him Judas. Call him your mother-in-law. Call him your spouse. Call him your wayward child. How are you going to respond to them? Here's what the Bible says over and over again. There's a self-denying love that takes us down into what feels like death. And it's not a three-day and you'll get out. You're waiting for resurrection and what that means, only God knows. But that is the shape of the Christian life over and over and over again. When I was younger, I thought, okay, it's family and kids, and then you just kind of get up, and then you make a lot of money, and then you retire. Maybe it dips a little, but then you really figure out retirement. And life is like J-curve, 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 death, meet Jesus. That's life. Everyone suffers, but Christians are called to suffer like this. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says it like this. If we share in his sufferings, we will be glorified with him one day. Christians, here's what I want to remind you of. You are a son of God, not by your own doing. You are a daughter of God, not by your own doing. The only way you can claim that is if the spirit of God is leading you and the spirit of adoption is in you. You are beloved. The spirit of slavery which causes you to fall back into fear is no longer the spirit that controls you. The spirit of adoption is now alive and well in you. 
and his spirit bears witness with your spirit and cries out, Abba, Father, you are his child. Do not forget that. Here's one of the most beautiful, succinct messages of the gospel I've ever seen. One guy says it like this. Here's what the gospel does. It takes this heavenly courtroom where we are sinners, guilty, and it turns it into an adoption celebration. We are no longer just forgiven sinners. We are sons and daughters that have been welcomed in to the family of God. And we get to be his children. And if his children, then his heirs, provided we suffer with him so that one day we might be glorified with him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just this truth. Even as I pray, Father, I'm reminded that Father is unique to Christianity in addressing God. That Father is the Christian name for God. That we are in your family now only by the work done by Jesus in the spirit that now dwells in us. God, for this room, as we talk through fears and anxieties and insecurities that are everywhere in this room, I just pray that this little passage this morning would remind us that the answer to our fears is not having more solutions or answers to that which is causing fear. The solution is simply crying, Abba, Father, and living out of our spirit of adoption as opposed to our spirit of fear. So God, for those in this room who need to be reminded that they're loved, that they are children, loved and adored by their Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just do that in their heart exactly the way this passage says you do it. For those that are acutely suffering right now, I pray that this would be an encouragement, that their suffering is not in vain, that they are suffering with you and waiting to be glorified one day with you, and it's worth it. So God, we love you. Thank you for this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.